Forget the drunken skipper fable. As to Captain Joe Hazelwood, he was below decks, sleeping off his bender. At the helm, the third mate may never have collided with Bly Reef had he not looked at his raycast radar. But the radar was not turned on. In fact, the tanker's radar was left broken and disabled for more than a year before the disaster, and Exxon management knew it. It was just too expensive to fix and operate. Journalist Greg Pallast, 2008. This was the Exxon Valdez oil spill, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. The evening of March 23, 1989, the Exxon Valdez left the port of Valdez in Alaska, heading for Long Beach, California. On board was 53 million of Prude Hole Bay crude oil. Just after midnight on March 24, the Exxon Valdez ship hit the Bly Reef, a well-known hazard found in Alaska's Prince William Sound. The impact was huge, tearing open the hull, spilling 11 million gallons of thick crude oil into the waters. In 1989, it was the largest single oil spill in US waters until Deep Horizon in 2010. The first attempts to contain the oil failed. For months, the oil slick spread further, covering 1,300 miles of coastline. During investigations, it would be found that Joseph Hazelwood the captain had been drinking at the time and had an unlicensed, inexperienced third mate steer the huge boat. But before that, let's look at what happened. So the ship was docked at Valdez Marine Terminal on March 22nd at 11.30pm. Loading of the crude oil was done by the following day, the 23rd. The tanker then left the terminal on the 23rd at 9.12pm clearing the dock by 9.20, according to the log. By 9.25pm, Captain Joseph Hazelwood had retired to his cabin. This left William Murphy, a harbour pilot, and Gregory Cousins, a third mate. They were accompanied by a single tugboat for the passage through the Valdez Narrows. They left the Narrows at about 11.24pm, and at this point, the pilot left the bridge. Then the captain was called to the bridge. Cousins helped the pilot disembark the vessel, meaning the captain was the only officer on the bridge. 11.25pm, the pilot left. Third mate spoke to the traffic control. The third mate then decided to go against the predetermined traffic lane to avoid small icebergs, which were common in the area. The vessel was now placed due south, and autopilot was engaged. 11.47pm, the vessel left the traffic lane headed eastbound. So the third mate Cousins was on duty for about six hours, and second mate Lloyd Lecan Jr. was supposed to relieve Cousins. Lecan had done an extra long shift, so Cousin didn't want to wake him and decided to remain on duty instead. For most of the night, Cousins was the only officer on the bridge which was actually violating company policy. Around midnight, heading into the March 24th, Cousins moved the vessel into the traffic lane. At that time, a lookout reported the Bly Reef light appear on starboard bow in the distance. This was a problem because that light should have been seen port side. Cousin took it upon himself to change the course to avoid danger. 
He phoned Hazelwood while talking and explaining the situation, the ship grounded. At 12.04am, the ship ran aground a Bly Reef and was described as a bump with six very sharp jolts. The momentum kept the ship going and it ended up perched on its middle on a pinnacle of rock. Of the 11 cargo holds, 8 were torn open. 5.8 million gallons of oil drained from the ship in under 3.5 hours. The coast guards weren't told until 30 minutes after the grinding, once attempts to dislodge the ship by Exxon Valdez's crew failed. For 45 minutes, Captain Hazelwood tried to move it free of the reef despite the first mate and Mr. James Kunkel telling him it wasn't structurally sound without the reef's support. Many factors were identified as contributing to the incident, like the fact that Exxon Shipping Company failed to supervise the captain and failed to provide enough rest time to the crew. NTSB or National Transportation Safety Board would find this to be widespread in the industry. This prompted a safety recommendation to Exxon and the whole industry. Then you had the third mate who failed to properly manoeuvre the vessel. This could have been down to being overtired or too much of a workload on his shoulder. The Exxon Shipping Company also failed to properly maintain the Raytron Collision Avoidance System or Raycast Radar. If working correctly, it would have indicated to the third mate of the collision before it happened by detecting radar reflectors placed on a rock inland from Bly Reef. This was to keep ships on course. This cause was brought up by Greg Pallast, a journalist, but it is not in the official accident report. Hazelwood, the captain, was reported to have been drinking a lot that night and was not at controls when the ship hit the reef. Easy Out Exxon blamed him for the accident and he in turn accused the corporation of making him a scapegoat. In 1990, he he would be charged with criminal mischief, reckless endangerment and piloting vessel while intoxicated. These three charges were cleared. Instead, he was charged with misdemeanor and negligent discharge of oil. 21 people testified his will did not appear drunk around the time of the accident. Uh, MIT course named Software System Safety by Professor Nancy Levison would find other factors, like the ship weren't informed the previous practice of the Coast Guard tracking ships out to Bly Reef had stopped. The fact the oil industry promised better equipment like state-of-the-art iceberg monitoring, but never installed it. The Exxon Valdez was sailing outside the normal sea lane, Coast Guard inspection in Valdez wasn't done, and finally the lack of available equipment and personnel was an issue in the cleanup. From the disaster, the International Maritime Organization introduced the Marine Pollution Prevention Rules, or MARPOL, through various conventions. The aim was safer ships and cleaner oceans. 2009, Hazelwood, the captain, gave a heartfelt apology to the people of Alaska. He would say he was wrongfully blamed, stating, quote, The true story is out there for anybody who wants to look at the facts. But that's not the sexy story. And that is not the easy story. End quote. So the cleanup, chemical dispersants, a surfactant and solvent mix was applied to the slick by a private company on March 24th by helicopter. 
but the helicopter missed the intended area. The toxicity of the chemical was a bit unsure, scientific data was thin or incomplete, the public also weren't very behind it. Landowners, fishers and conservation groups all questioned the chemicals that were being used on hundreds of miles of shoreline, especially considering other options were available to be used. Our old friend Core Exit was the main component. I explained in my episode of Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill 2010 about Core Exit. But to recap, it's made by Nalco and it emulsifies oil floating in the water. They turn into tiny drops and sink and usually remain in the waters. Effects aren't fully known and studies done have indicated it's toxic to marine life and to human health. So that was the compound in the cleanup along with 2-butoxyethanol, which is an agent with the ability to cause liver, kidney, lung, nervous system and blood disorders among the cleanup crew in Alaska after the 1989 Exxon Valdez spill. Booms and skimmers were used shortly after the spill, but the skimmers weren't available in the first 24 hours. And the thick, thick oil and kelp, a type of seaweed, kept clogging the equipment. The people cried out for a clean-up, but only 10% of the oil was completely cleaned. Exxon was hugely criticised for its slow response, and the Mayor of Valdez, John Devins, said the community felt betrayed by Exxon. Over 11,000 residents from Alaska, some Exxon employees worked tirelessly to restore the environment they once had. The cleanup was really well done to be fair to the residents and cleanup crew, but failed to contain the majority of the spill, spilled oil, and this failure was blamed on Exxon. November 26, Director of Alaska Operations Office, Kurzin Beck, told the Coast Guard that the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, suspected from a recruit site visit to the port of Valdez that they were not prepared for a major spill event. The area of Prince William Sound was rocky, with many coves where the oil pooled easily. Because of this, a decision was made to use boiling hot water at high pressure to displace and thoroughly clean it. At least that was the hope but this almost scorched the earth approach destroyed the microbial population on the shoreline. Many of the organisms destroyed were a main item on the food chain for marine coastal life, and ironically the likes of bacteria and fungi that were wiped out would have helped to biodegrade the oil. At the time there was a panic, urgency to clean immediately. Scientific advice backed this urgency, and public pressure increased to act now, not later. Since then, we understand more and more of natural and facilitated remediation processes have been developed. This understanding actually in part came from the opportunity to study the Exxon Valdez spill. Despite the hard work, the attempts, the man hours, only 10% of the oil was recovered. Long and short term effects of the spill have been studied. 100,000 to 250,000 seabirds died from it. Nearly 3,000 sea otters, 12 river otters, 300 harbor seals, 250 bald eagles, 25 orcas, and many salmon and herring all died. 
The remaining oil lasted far, far longer than what was thought, and as a result, long-term losses of species remained high. Species such as sea otters, harlequin ducks and orcas had immediate and long-term losses. Oiled mussel beds and other tidal shoreline habitats may take 30 years or more to recover. ExxonMobil weren't too worried about the remaining oil. They believed what remains wouldn't cause long-term impacts. A study did, did concluded, quote, We've done 350 peer-reviewed studies of Prince William Sound, and those studies conclude that Prince William Sound has recovered, it's healthy and it's thriving. End quote. March 2014, the 25th anniversary, NOAA scientists reported some species recovering, like the sea otter, but concerns remained for orca whales fearing a pod will eventually die out. Estimates that 21,000 gallons of oil still remain on the beaches of Prince William Sound and nearly 450 miles away. Some of the oil that remains appears to have not biodegraded at all. Alaskan State Senator Gardner urged Alaskan politicians to demand the government forces and Axon pay $92 million that was owed from the court settlement, which would be spent on the fishing, finishing the cleaning up and trying to restore the damaged herring population. October 1989, Exxon filed a suit against the state of Alaska. The suit claimed that the state was interfering with Exxon's cleanup attempts by refusing to use dispersant chemicals until the night of the 26th. The state argued against this, saying that there was always a long-term standing agreement to allow use of dispersants in cleanup spills, so Exxon didn't need permission, and what actually happened was Exxon didn't have enough dispersants to use on the spill of that size. Then, in 1990, Exxon filed against the Coast Guards, asking to be reimbursed for any damages awarded to plaintiffs filed by Alaska state or federal government against Exxon, and for clean, of course. Exxon blamed the Coast Guard in all or part of the responsibility for the spill because they granted mariners license to the crew of Valdez and gave permission to the Valdez to leave the usual lane to avoid ice. Exxon also said the Coast Guard was to bla be blamed for the delay as they refused to give permission to immediate use of chemical dispersants. 1991, a hush-hush secret financial settlement was done with Exxon and seafood producer group called the Seattle 7. The agreement granted $64 million to the Seattle 7, but a clause meant the seafood companies would have to repay all of any punitive damages awarded awarded in later civil proceedings. Five billion dollars in punitive damages were later awarded. If it held up, it meant the Seafood 7 would share around 750 million dollars to be paid. The five, million five billion dollar uh, case is that of Exxon versus Baker. An Anchorage jury awarded 287 million dollars for actual damages and $5 billion in punitive damages. To protect itself in case it was affirmed, Exxon obtained $4.8 billion from JP Morgan and Co. Exxon appealed against the $5 billion and the 9th US Circuit Court of Appeals ordered to reduce the amount. 
it was reduced to $4 billion. Exxon appealed again, this time it was increased to $4.5 billion plus interest. More appeals in December 20, uh, 2006, Supreme Court took it down to $2.5 billion. May 2007 appealed again, but this time the request was denied, and the ruling stood that Exxon owed $2.5 billion in punitive damages. Exxon appealed to the Supreme Court and they agreed to hear the case, and on February 22, 2008, they heard oral arguments. Justice Alito had to recuse himself as he owned 25,000 stocks of Exxon. June 25, 2008, the court vacated the $2.5 billion, remanding the case back to lower court as the damages were excessive with respect to maritime common law. The punitive damages were reduced to $507 million. Exxon still were not happy. Anything greater than $25 million they found not justified because the spill was an accident and they spent $2 billion cleaning up and $5 billion to settle civil and criminal charges. Exxon recovered a lot of expenses through insurance claims connected to the grinding of Exxon Valdez. As of December 2009, Exxon had paid the $507 million in full, one-tenth of the original damages. They remained uh, hugely profitable, the payments were drawn out over decades and the long-term damage continues, but Exxon funds nothing to it. 1989, the Coast Guard reported an accident making recommendations. They said all involved, Exxon, State of Alaska, Federal Government, all were not prepared for a spill of this size. In response to the spill, Congress passed the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, or OPA. In 1998, the company argued legal action against federal government that the ship should be allowed back in Alaskan waters. This was down to OPA prohibiting any vessels after March 2, 1989 that had caused the spill above a million gallons of oil from operating in Prince William Sound. Exxon argued OPA was in sense a bill of attainer, a legislator declaring someone or a group guilty of a crime, punishing them for said crime with no trial. Exxon felt OPA was punishing them and only them. 2002, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against Exxon. As of 2002, the OPA prevented 18 ships entering Prince William Sound. OPA also approved a gradual phase in of a double hull design. This gave an additional layer between the oil tanks and the ocean. While a double hull would not have prevented the Exxon Valdez disaster, it would have reduced the amount of oil that spilled. So what happened to the ship? The remains of the Exxon Valdez was towed to San Diego July 10th. Repairs started July 30th. About 1,600 short tons of steel was removed and replaced. June 1990, the newly repaired, now Exxon Mediterranean, left the harbour at a cost of $30 million to repair. From then, it went from owner to owner, being renamed several times. 1993, Sea River Maritime owned it and renamed it to SR Mediterranean. And then in 2005, it was called just the Mediterranean. 
In 2008, a Hong Kong company owned it, renaming it Dong Fang Ocean. Then in 2011, it was renamed again to Oriental Nicety. August 2012, the vessel was beached at Dalian in China and then dismantled. After the spill, Alaska Governor Koper issued an executive order requiring two tugboats to escort every loaded tanker from Valdez through Prince William Sound to Hinchinbrook entrance. Tankers at Valdez are no longer single-hulled. As of 2015, all tankers are to be double-hulled. 1991, following the collapse of the local maritime population, the Chugok Alaska Corporation and Alaska Native Corporation all folded. Other areas affected include the loss of recreational sports, fisheries, tourism and what is called existing value, which is the value to the public of the area. In 2010, CNN reported about studies on the cleanup crew who were now sick, very sick and warned those then working on the deep water horizon spill to take heed. And that is the Exxon Valdez oil spill of 1989. Thank you all for listening. Join me next time as I look at the Stardust fire, a fatal fire that happened in the Stardust nightclub in Artane, Dublin, Ireland in the early hours of Valentine's Day, for February 14th, 1981. 800 attended an event, but 214 were injured and 48 sadly died. It's still not known what exactly happened, leaving the survivors, victims' families and friends in limbo. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil.